Hello, everybody. Just looking around to see who I recognize. <laughs> I was just reminiscing sitting there to, uh, I think the last time I was speaking it was uh, what was then Basingstoke Community Church. I think it's got to be three decades ago at, uh, at Richard Oldworth School. Was anybody there? You remember those days? And um, I, remember, I remember it really well because I remember I was, we used to have a platform party. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was all the people who were on the platform were the ones who were weak, so they had to worship because they were sitting there, you know. And I was doing fine. I was looking in my notes of what I was going to preach, and I was doing fine um, until right at the back of that uh, school hall, I saw David Pawson walk in, the intergalactic Bible teacher of all Bible teachers. Some of you haven't got a clue who he was, but look him up. Uh, he's with the Lord now. And I panicked. <laughs> it's David Pawson! Oh, he'll be checking my theology. So, uh, well, you can do that today. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm a heretic, but uh, we'll see how we go. And it's great to finish off this. I've been working with the Elim movement for uh, 17 years now. But b- previous to that, I was part of uh, the Salt and Light Network. And, of course, Basingstoke was part of that back in the day. And um, spent about 25 years working with a guy called Mark Mumford. Do anybody remember Mark? Yeah, we still see each other now and again. Mark actually lives just down the road from me now, near Worcester. And uh, so we get lunch together now and, now and again and sort out the world. And, uh, and so uh, they were formative years for me in so very many ways. And uh, I think some of what I'll share today, that will become uh, even more clear. So uh, let me just start with the story. So once upon a time, uh, there were two camels who were having a talk one day. Uh, a daddy camel, and his son. And the son said to his dad, he said, Dad, can I ask you, why have we got these big feet at the end of our legs? And his dad said, well, that's so that when we're in the desert, when we're walking through the desert, our feet spread out, and we can walk across the sand without sinking into the sand. Some of you know this story, don't you? Yeah, don't give it away. <laughs> our feet spread out, and we can walk across the sand without sinking. So the son said, okay. Dad, why do we have these really big teeth in our mouth? Well, son, that's so that when we come to an oasis, we can chew the vegetation, even though it's really tough, and we can get all the nutrition uh, into our bodies to keep us going in the desert. Son said, okay. Dad, why have we got these big humps on our back? Well, son, that's so that once we've been in the, the oasis and we've been eating and drinking... We can then store it in the hump and we can go for days or even weeks walking through the desert without needing any sustenance. So the son said, okay, dad, can I ask you one more question? Sure. What are we doing here in London Zoo? (laughs) Is that the same one you'd heard? Yeah, okay, very good. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. Now, the reason why I tell you that story to kick off this afternoon with what I want to share is the Bible says that God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Is that right? He's given us everything we need to live at large for Jesus out there in the world. And yet the the sad thing is and the challenging thing is for us is so often we lock up what God has put into our lives, what he's invested in our lives, We lock it up in the zoo. For zoo, read, church. 
and we keep it all in here when the world out there is desperate to hear some good news. And more than just hear some good news, but experience some good news. How many of you know that we've got the best news in the world for a a dead and dying world? Amen. Uh, I mean, we really have. So um, what I'd like to do uh, this this afternoon uh, is I'd like to share with you a little bit on, (laughs) this is crazy, in a church like the Hub, um, how to be a disciple. Yeah? You know they used to call us the discipleship movement. Do you remember that? And uh, so that was really, it's been an interesting journey for me the last 17 years being part of another part of the body of Christ. How to be a disciple. And the reason why I want to talk to you about that is, um, how many of you know that God never intended for you to be a Christian? Yeah, that woke you up, didn't it? God never intended for you to be a Christian. You know, the word Christian, uh, I'm sure you're well-taught Bible Students, the word Christian in the New Testament is only used. Well, let's have let's have a vote. Let's see how much you know. The word Christian in the New Testament, it's either used three times, nine times, or ninety-seven times. Okay, three times, nine times, or ninety-seven. Let's have a vote. How many of you think three? How many? Wow. How many of you think nine? Wow. How many of you think ninety-seven? How many of you are too scared to vote? Yeah, 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 I get it. Well, of course, as many of you know, it's only used three times. And when they were called Christians, where was the first place they were called Christians? Antioch, that's right, in Acts of the Apostles. And they were called Christians. It wasn't like a, a thing to be proud of. It was like a nickname that was given to the followers of Jesus. Yeah, you know, oh, you are Christians, you are little Christs. You are little anointed ones. No, 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 no. You know, it had that feel about it, you know. Now, the word disciple or disciples, wonder how many times that's used in the New Testament. Let's have a vote. It's either used three times, nine times, or 97 times. Are you ready? Hands up for three. Hands up for nine. Hands up for 97. Wow. It's actually at least 290 times, (laughs) depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, okay? At least 290 times you read that word. And of course, that's what Jesus wants for us. So the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus gets them together. He says, listen, guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, go. And as one of my friends once told me, go is two-thirds of the name of God. To which I replied, so is odd. What does that prove? (laughs) But interesting thought. So, yeah, go and make disciples, yeah, of all nations. That was the commission of Jesus. Don't think Jesus has changed his mind, has he? No, no. That's always been the core on our lives. So so back in March uh, 2020, do you remember that? Do you remember that time? I, I was talking to my wife, Sally. I'm still married to the same woman, by the way, uh, and uh, only ever have been. And I was talking to Sally one day, and I said, do you know what, love? I said, uh, I've really made a mistake this year. She said, why? I said, I've just, I've just overcommitted. So here we are in March, and I'm looking through my diary through till Christmas. I don't know when I'm going to breathe. I mean, it's crazy. And that was the week before covid I mean, a week later, my diary was empty. 
I mean, because, you know, my, the nature of my, my job is to travel a lot, and there was nothing going on. So Sally said to me, she said, now listen, she said, you've been meaning to write that book uh, for the last 12 months and, and always putting it off. She said, you've got no excuse. Sit at the kitchen table, get writing. <laughs> Sally is, uh, uh, she's just, she retired last week. She got ahead of me. So Sally was the uh, librarian at Regents Theological College up in Malvern where we live. And so she loves books anyway. So uh, she got me writing it. And here it is, just been out two years now, two years almost to the day. The Discipleship Lifestyle, How Disciples Develop Disciples. Because if disciples develop disciples, if disciples make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, guess what we get? Begins with, begins with ch and ends in urch. That's what happens. So, um, so I wrote the book, and I, I thought, you know, we'll have a go. Well, it seems to scratch where people are reaching. It's just been reprinted for the third time, and uh, so I thought you might like one. So I brought a bunch, which are out there by the door, and now normally this retails at £8.99, but today, ladies and gentlemen, in Basingstoke, nine quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because I haven't got any pennies, and uh, that's if you're paying cash. I've also got one of these incredible little card machines. Have you seen them? It's like magic. It's like you wave your card over it, and it takes money out of your bank account. It's great. So uh, if you want to pay $8.99, use a card, and I'll, I've got some out there, and uh, hopefully I've got enough for anybody who wants one. And, of course, Christmas is coming. Buy one for your friends as well. Why not? So there we go. And uh, that will tell you far more about the whole issue of discipleship, because what can we say in half an hour? But let's get into it and let's see where we go. Where do you even start? Well, you always have to start with your hearts, don't you? Because if, uh, if we think about discipleship in terms of rules or ways of acting, we're in real trouble. And that was some of our problem way back. Those of you who, like me, have been around the block a few times, you'll know what I'm talking about, yeah? But we start with our hearts and what God wants to do inside. So if you have Bibles with you, maybe you'd like to turn with me to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, or you might want to do it on your device. And uh, we'll uh, read this passage, and then let me talk about it for a few minutes. Luke chapter 14, going to read from verse 25. <clears throat> so remember, we're talking about how to be a disciple. And we're starting with the idea of cost. So here's what it says. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, we'll stop there for now. Jesus has got some other heavy things to say if you read on, but I think for the sake of time, we'll just stop there for now. The first thing I want you to notice here is Luke says large crowds were traveling, traveling along with Jesus. This was Jesus Christ superstar. 
This was Jesus at the height of his popularity. And why would he not be popular? Because when Jesus spoke, the Bible says uh, he was one who spoke with authority, exousia. He wasn't like the other religious leaders, you know, where he just dribbled down their chin. When Jesus spoke, he really had things to say that were relevant and cutting and all the rest. So people wanted to hear. And not only that, Jesus told the best stories, didn't he? Uh, you know, we call them parables. Yeah, He told the best stories. And actually, so many of them were just funny. They were just funny. And I think we often miss that because... When we read the Bible, we've got black words on the white page, or if you've got a trendy Bible, you've got red words when it's Jesus. And we don't get under the skin of what's going on there. But when Jesus starts telling a story and says, there was this shepherd, everybody begins to nudge each other. Because this is going to be funny, because shepherds weren't very clever, they thought. Yeah? And he was going to have a little bit of a dig in a nice way, not in a way like stand-ups do today. So all of that was going on. He spoke with words of authority and he was fun. Secondly, signs, wonders and miracles were just dripping off his fingers. Yeah? So that the blind saw, the deaf heard, the, the paralyzed were healed. Even the dead were raised to life. I mean, who wouldn't want to be around a guy like that? Wouldn't that be absolutely amazing? And of course, the other thing we know is that um, children... Love being hanging out with Jesus, didn't they? Now, I've got, uh, I've got six grandchildren. Um, in fact, last time I was here, I didn't have any. Now I've got six. So, um, and one of the things I've noticed with my grandkids is this, that when we're at a, if we're at a family do or some sort of party, they gravitate towards the fun people. Have you noticed that? The people who are smiley, the people who get down on their level and chat with them and all the rest, they gravitate to those sort of people. They want to be around them. They want to show them their toys. They want to um, uh, show them their, <laughs> their Duplo. Do you know what Duplo is? Yeah, it's like Lego that's been on steroids, isn't it? It's like that massive stuff. And, uh, and that's, that's what happens. And we know that the kids, they wanted to be with Jesus. And his followers told them to go away. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. Let the kids come. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Yeah? So, this massively attractive, magnetic personality. And we guess, at this stage, thousands of people were following him. Because do you remember when they had a picnic, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So I guess there's thousands going on here. Now, what would you do? If you had been Jesus Christ in this situation, just imagine that, that, well, let's imagine we were the crowd. That's probably easier, isn't it, yeah? So imagine we're in the crowd and we're all following behind him. He's at the front and suddenly Jesus stops and he turns around to face us. And we're all thinking, whoa, whoa, here we go. More great stories, more miracles. Where's the kids? You know, all that's going on. And Jesus hits us with like three verbal left hooks to the chin. And I think the reason why Jesus does this, there's, there's actually more than this, but I think the reason why he does this is because, um, well, he tells the truth. Jesus is the truth and he tells the truth. And he doesn't want anybody fooled into thinking that a discipleship lifestyle following Jesus, he doesn't want them to, to think that it's a walk in the park. 
Because that's the last thing it is. We'll talk more about that later. So here we go. Look at what he actually says to them. And, uh, and, and I believe what he says to us today. Because we're gathered here in the name of Jesus. He's here. Some of you realize that just as we've been singing and worshiping him. Something's happening in the place. And, and we can't see him. Uh, we can't reach out and touch him physically. But he promised, didn't he? That when we're together in his name, he's right there. And so that same living Lord Jesus has the same kind of things to say to you and me today that he said to those people all those years ago. So here's the first, uh, the first of the triple whammy, if you like. The first thing he says. Look what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow. What does that mean? Now, many of you, I guess, would work this out really, really quickly. What Jesus is doing here is using a technique called hyperbole. Yeah? I used to think it was hyperbole because I just read the word and I'm a council estate kid from the black country, you know, but my wife, who's highly intelligent, yeah, who went to this very posh girls' school in Reading, can't remember what it's called now, but she was there. And uh, she said, it's hyperbole, stupid. I said, okay, thank you, darling. And uh, so, but the point is, a hyperbole is when you exaggerate something to make the point, isn't it? And it's not the first time that Jesus has done this. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, Plug it out. Now, I've not seen many one-armed, one-eyed believers walking around on the planet, have you? So we understand that Jesus makes the point by exaggeration. And it's a similar thing. In fact, it's the same idea that he's using here. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if you don't love me more than you love anybody else, or actually even anything else, it's never going to work for you. And by the way, when we talk about love, we're not talking about a gooey feeling here. We're actually talking about commitment. That's what he means by love. Yeah? It's about a commitment. If, you're not more, if Jesus is not front and center in our, in our commitment, it's never going to work. So there's the first challenge for you and me. What's the, what place do we give Jesus in our everyday life? I'm not talking about Sunday afternoons primarily, I'm talking about Monday morning. Yeah? You, may, you may be like Bob Geldof. You might not like Monday mornings. I want to tell you, God loves Monday mornings. I mean, God, yeah, God likes Monday mornings more than he likes Sunday afternoons. Did you know that? Because on Monday morning, God's thinking, oh, oh, great. Here we go. All of my people scattered out, sort of light into the world. Let's go. Huh? Amazing. But if Jesus isn't right there at the very center, then we've got some trouble. I've got a friend, uh, just one. <laughs> uh, his name's Stuart. And um, Stuart is a massive Derby County Football Club fan. Yeah? And um, he's, he's not a follower of Jesus as far as I'm aware, but he's mad keen on Derby County. I mean, he's a, he's a season ticket holder. Um, he's got all the kit, you know, both, I mean, the first team kit, the second team kit, the away kit. And how many of you know that costs a lot of money these days? When Derby are playing away, 
you know, he travels to watch them. He buys the tickets at the other grounds. He'll stay in hotels overnight just so he can see his beloved Rams football team. Now, if you were around Stuart for just a couple of minutes, you'd know all this because he can't help himself. When he's with you, guess what he talks about more than anything else? Derby County, yeah? He'd let you know that very, very quickly. And that's how you show your commitment to anything. What do you speak about the most? What do you spend your money on? And where do you spend your time and energy? It's a great evidence giver of what's really, really important in your life. Don't you think? Yeah? Yeah? And so there's a challenge for each one of us in terms of how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus. How much do we speak about him? I mean, out there in the big wide world, never mind in church. Yeah? And how much... Uh, How much do we give him of our time and our energy and our finances? British people hate talking about money, don't they? Jesus talks about it all the time, but that's a different story. You know, so all of those things are pointers in terms of how much we really love Jesus, how much we're really committed to him. I don't know about you. I find that a massive challenge, a massive challenge. Because sometimes, even, even when it comes down just to speaking about him, um, we, we rationalize things and we make excuses for ourselves. I heard about this young couple <laughs> who uh, moved on to a new housing estate. And they decided, they were followers of Jesus, but they decided that they would show their faith by how they lived their lives. They would conduct what we call technically presence evangelism. So the way they treated each other as husband and wife, the way they raised their kids, the way they kept a kingdom lawn, can't believe we used to talk about that rubbish. Anyway, you know, and um, you know, and how they cleaned their car and all the rest. You know, they did all that. And after a couple of years, they were having a coffee with their next door neighbours. Next door neighbours said, um, "We've been watching you guys, and there's something different about you, isn't there?" Christian said, "Do you think so?" And they said, uh, "Yeah, and we've worked it out. You're vegetarians, aren't you?" Yeah? <laughs> Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And somehow, God has to help us to break this conspiracy of silence that we have about putting the name of Jesus on our lips and speaking about how good He is and how kind He is and how He's transformed our lives. Because the Word of our testimony defeats the dragon. Amen. Could say a lot more about that, but our time's going. So let's move on to the second left hook that Jesus delivers. Here it is. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, here we are, 21st century believers, and I think sometimes we misunderstand what this really means. So, I've heard people say things like this, oh, it's October, and uh, the weather's, you know, the, the, the nights are closing in, it's getting cold. It is this week, by the way. Watch the weather forecast. And they say, um, this time of year when it gets all damp and cold, you know, I get one, I get one infection after another, one cold after another, uh, the flu, you know, I get shivery and everything, and it, got, it lasts right through till March. Still, I guess that's just the, the cross I have to bear. Or uh, I heard somebody say this. They said, um, do you know, where I work, one of my colleagues we have a massive personality clash. We work in the same office, but we just do not get on. 
It's like they're always saying stuff that's contradictory to what I'm saying about how we should do our work. And uh, there's always tension in the office. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm with this person every day, Monday through Friday. Still, I guess that's just a cross that I have to carry. When we say those sort of things, what it betrays is we've forgotten what was going on here. Because if you, 2,000 years ago, if you saw someone carrying a cross along the road, you knew what was going to happen. There was only one end to that, and that was this person was going to be hung on it, and they were going to be crucified. So, here's the invitation from Jesus to you and me. The invitation that he makes to us is this. (laughs) Come and die. Come and die. It's a happy, clappy message today, isn't it? (laughs) In other words, die to your own ambitions. Die to your own plans, your own um, ways of doing things, your own, you know, your own decisions about the future. Say no to them in order that you can say yes to the resurrection life of Jesus being worked out in your life. Does that make sense? But you have to say no to self in order to say yes to Jesus. Otherwise, you end, up, you end up totally compromised. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God is going that way. Your kingdom, the kingdom of self, is going that way. If you try and stand with one foot in the kingdom of self, you know, claiming rights of your own life, and one foot in the kingdom of God going that way, do you know what's going to happen? It's really painful. It really is. So you'd be better off doing this, and at least enjoying the next few years or decades or however long you've got, or jump fully in with following Jesus. And if you do that, there's only one place you're going to follow him to. So the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, you know, the guy on the Damascus Road, you know, big light, shabam. (laughs) I love it. He says, who are you, Lord? (laughs) That's called hedging your bets, isn't it? (laughs) He knew exactly who it was. And, of course, he becomes this great leader in the church. And later on, he writes to these believers in Galatia. He writes this letter, which, uh, interestingly, is called Galatians. And uh, he says this about his own experience. He he says, this is my experience. Uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. Wow. Isn't that incredible? And because Paul was able to do that, say that, and live that sort of experience, he was so incredibly used by God to uh, change the face of the then-known world and the world which we now inhabit as well. There's a great book, if any of you are really into reading stuff, uh, some of you may have read this, Paul, a biography by a man called N.T. Wright. Anybody seen that? Big, thick book. Take some reading, but it's an amazing book about this guy's life. So how about you and me? You see, I've discovered there are two people who are really good at resurrection. One is the Lord. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is brilliant at resurrection. Somebody else who's really good at resurrection is me. I'm really good at it because I can resurrect the old Gary very easily. You know, I can just bring him back to life. 
and start doing my own thing, you know, and singing along with that great prophet Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. But it gets me nowhere. Well, it gets me in some really bad stuff. So I have to learn what he's put elsewhere. Paul says this. He says, I die daily. I die daily. In other words, this is a daily decision to say no to self and to say yes to the way of Jesus. And that's where we really make a difference in this world. No to self and yes to the way of Jesus. Then we discover what what living as a, a disciple is really all about and how it works. Here's one thing that I've discovered about dead people. <laughs> it's really difficult to tempt a dead person, isn't it? Huh? I mean, if you don't believe me, take some chocolate bars down the local cemetery and see how many takers you get. Okay? I mean, they don't get tempted when they're dead, do they? They're in another place. But what about you and me? What about you and me? So often we get distracted by things, by, uh, by stuff, you know, by possessions or by career. Nothing wrong with having a career mentality. But when it becomes the God of our lives or when, or when we deserve, decide to serve uh, money and stuff, mammon instead of God, you know, all that becomes the distraction to our lives and stop us from being the women and men that God's called us to be. Now, you might be here this morning, this evening. Where are we? This afternoon. Yeah. Where am I? Basingstoke. Yeah. And uh, you might... Um, be sitting there, and you, you know, you're looking really cool, by the way. And, uh, and, and also, can I say, you, you re- you're looking good. You are looking good. You know, the hair and the makeup, and the women have made an effort as well. It's great to see all that. <laughs> What's that called? Metrosexual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. You might be here today, and you might be thinking, even though you're looking very nice on the outside, you might be thinking, hey, Gary, hang on a minute. This is a bit heavy. Why should I even consider living this kind of a life and making these sort of decisions? Why should I even think about um, dying to self to live for Christ? Well, there's only one good reason that I can think of, and it's simply this. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was crucified for you. He gave everything he had for you. He went through the agony and the torture of the cross, took the shame of our past, took the blame for all of our wrongdoing, for all of our selfishness, for all of the accumulated rubbish in our lives. Jesus, when he was crucified, it's as if Jesus was saying, blame me. Blame me for everything they've ever done, said, or thought. I'll take the blame. I'll take the rap. I'll take the penalty so that they can know what it is to have a whole new life. Now, I don't know about you, but at the tender age of 17, when I said a big yes to following Jesus, that's nearly 50 years ago now. When I said a big yes to following Jesus, I'd never been to church. I'd never been to Sunday school. I knew nothing about the Bible. All I knew was that Jesus, the Son of God, had died on the cross for me. And I remember thinking, if this is true, it means that Jesus gave everything he had for me. He couldn't give me any more. I mean, that's giving 100%, isn't it? When someone dies for you. And I remember thinking, how dare I even consider giving him anything less than the whole of my life. That's what he deserves. And that's what he demands. And that's how this thing actually works in practice. 
You still there? One more thing before we finish. Is that all right? Here's what he says. Look at this third whammy. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. What's he talking about? He's talking about, and it follows on from what we've just said, he's talking about counting the cost. What will it really cost you to live for Christ? There's a, there's a program on Channel 4. Anybody here watch Channel 4? Uh, usually it's not very good, but there's a program on Channel 4 that Sally and I used to watch a lot called Grand Designs. You ever seen Grand Designs? And uh, we watched it for months, and then we got really, really bored. Because every episode follows the same format. Have you worked that out yet? So what happens is this, if you haven't seen it. Uh, usually a couple, a couple, uh, often a married couple or uh, you know, partners, they decide they're going to self-build a magnificent property. So they get a piece of land, and uh, they get it designed, and they start building it. And about halfway through the program, jeopardy. You've got to have jeopardy, and uh, something goes horribly wrong. Either they run out of money, and the bank won't give them any more on a mortgage, or um, they fall out with the builders, and the builders walk off site. Or in more recent episodes, because uh, it was filmed a while ago, COVID strikes. Yeah, something like that. So it's duh, duh, duh. what's going to happen? But after 55 minutes, you know, because then there's the ads, so you have to finish after 55 minutes, whoo, everything's fine. Everything's complete, and it's a wonderful property. Have you noticed? I mean, everyone's like that, you know, and uh, boring, yeah? That's not what's going on here. Jesus said, what about if you start and you can't finish? What about if you start on that journey of following Jesus and because you've never really thought through what that's going to mean, you fall off the side. There was a guy I used to work with. I think he probably came to Basingstoke me on one occasion. He was a gospel singer, um, really, really talented. Still is very talented. And we used to do an awful lot of stuff in universities and schools. And I, I'm sure we went in Queen, is Queen Mary's. Is that right? Yeah, Queen Mary's here in various places. And we saw so many people come to faith in Christ. Today... Um, he's, he's probably a millionaire and he's a Buddhist. How does that happen? How does that happen? Yeah. And as I look back over the years that I've followed Jesus, the path is littered on both sides with people who started off so well. Started off so well, so sincere it seemed in their following, following of Jesus. And today they deny that any of it is true. Or they've moved on to something else. I was um, talking to a guy a while ago. And he said to me, uh, he said, oh yeah, Gary, uh, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. I said, pardon? He said, uh, yeah, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. I said, uh, no, you didn't. He said, yeah, I did. I said, no, you didn't. He said, I did. I said, you didn't. He said, I did. I said, say it again, I'll punch you. 
not really. I said, mate, here's the thing. You don't, you don't try Christianity. It's not like, you know, stamp collecting or train spotting or, you know, candy crush on your device for a few years and then you give it up. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not how it works, is it? If Jesus Christ is God and gave himself for me, then he deserves I give everything to follow him. I was, um, I was listening many years ago. I was listening to a cassette tape. Anybody remember, remember cassette tapes? How many of you know the tool that you always needed was a pencil? Yeah, yeah. Some of the under 40s are looking at me like, what was that? Yeah, yeah. Never mind. So um, I'm listening to this cassette tape, and it was, uh, it was a, uh, a Chinese minister, a Chinese pastor, who was talking on the tape. This guy, he was telling his story. He had actually spent 16 years in a Chinese labor camp on the charge of being a Christian. That was the charge. And uh, he was up in the northeast of England, and, and it had been recorded, and I was listening to the tape. And uh, he said that his job every day for 16 years was cleaning out the camp cesspit. So every day, two guards would escort him to the cesspit. It was like a ramp down into the ground, and all the human excrement would, uh, you know, would collect at the bottom of this ramp. And his job was to wade in till he was waist deep in this stuff with his, with his shovel, and then shovel it out somewhere else. So he's telling the story, and on the tape, you could hear the crowd sort of, and he said, no, no, he said, you don't understand. He said, for me, it was a joy. He said, because what ha- the smell was so bad, he said, what happened was the guards would stand 15 meters back, and they would leave me to just walk into the, into the cesspit, and I would, I would begin to do my work, and while I was doing my work, I would sing to Jesus at the top of my voice and tell him how much I loved him and how wonderful he was and how kind and generous he was to me. And I would pray out loud and speak to my Father in heaven. And he said it was the only time that I could do that without getting a rifle butt in my face. He said those moments, those minutes were as close to heaven as I've ever felt. So I'm sitting at home listening to this tape and, and I, I felt my knees go. I was glad I was sitting down. My knees went weak. And honestly, I sat down and I said, Lord, I think if that was me, I think I would deny you. Really? And almost immediately, inwardly, I had that sense of God's assurance saying, hey, you don't need the help until you need it. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's true. I hope that would be true for me. But what about you and me? Have we really thought this through? When, when we act so often in our workplace or in our colleges or with our neighbors, we act so often out there like chameleon Christians, blending in with the background, failing to be those distinctive, loving, caring, holy people that God's called us to be. It's, uh, it's Black History Month. And uh, one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, you know, the civil rights leader from the States. And towards the end of his life, this is what Martin Luther King said. He said, the chief purpose for our lives is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. 
but it's to do the will of God, come what may. That's not a very um, popular 21st century view, is it? But let me tell you one more time. The chief purpose for our lives is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. It's to do the will of God. Come what may. In the area of civil rights, Martin Luther King Jr. did the will of God. He wasn't perfect. But in that area, he did the will of God. And it cost him his life. I doubt whether you and I doing the will of God will cost us our lives. I doubt that. But when you see all that Jesus has done for you, and when you note the number, the thousands and thousands of people who have given their lives fully and completely for the cause of Christ, what excuse do we have? What excuse do we have really? See, the Christian life is not difficult. It's not difficult. It's impossible. It really is impossible. And I want to bring you back to one of those words we had had from one of those gentlemen earlier on in our meeting today. You know, where Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, following Jesus, it's free. But it costs you everything. Yeah? It's a free gift to follow Jesus. But it costs you everything. That's the, the paradox. So I'm going to ask you as we draw to a conclusion now, I'm going to ask you, how would you respond to what King Jesus has to say to you today? What I'd like to ask you to do in a moment is this. If you feel you can, I'm going to ask you to stand before God, not as a way of saying, hey, I've got this taped, got it sorted, I'm there. Yeah, totally dead to self, totally alive to Christ, totally counting the cost, bish, bosh, bash, done. Because that would be, what's the technical word for that? A lie. (laughs) Because this side of eternity, none of us have got it all together, have we? The Bible says when we see him, we'll be like him. This side, we're all a work in progress. But I want to challenge you this this afternoon about, about your aspiration, about your trajectory. What is it that you want to be? in the years that lie ahead? How do you want your life to be moved forward, to progress in this, in, these, in this fashion that we've been talking about today? You see, if it was about having it all together, I'd have to sit down. But if it's about saying, Lord, here I am, with all of my weaknesses, with all of my foibles, in need of your grace, which is sufficient for me, in need of your help, in every, every area of my life, Lord, I can stand and say, Lord, help. Help me to be more and more the man that you've called me to be. Help me to become more and more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Help me, Father, to be someone who loves you more than I love anybody else or anything else. Help me to be someone who is ready to say no to self and yes to you, to move more and more on that cruciformed life that God calls me to. Help me to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the good news is, God gives us what we need. Actually, God gives us who we need. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You know, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened inwardly by the Holy Spirit. How about we ask God for that today?